Hello and welcome to Over the Air Christian Podcast. This is your host, Ricky. Today, I am very excited to record this episode. This one is very special to me. I'm going to talk about something that has been sitting in the back of my mind for a very, very long time. Just how long? Well, that story will come at the very end. In this episode, I'm going to present an idea or an interpretation of history, namely regarding what is called the prophetic silence of Scripture during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the four gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and the New Testament of the Bible. And I'm going to tie several things together around the same time era, along with the very significant startup of Greek philosophy that ultimately leads to the genesis of Western civilization through education, and the expansion of the Christian church through Pauline writings in the same region. This is to combine the silent period of scripture, genesis of philosophy and education, the four gospels of Jesus, and the beginning of the Christian church. And we will start by introducing some terms. For anyone who may be unfamiliar with what is silent years of scripture, there is a 400-year gap between the last book in the Old Testament Malachi, and the Gospel of Matthew at the start of the New Testament. In that 400-year period, no prophetic material was produced at all, meaning no recognized prophet ever spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or wrote down anything significant to be canonized as scripture, hence closing the canon for the Old Testament Bible at that point. And roughly 400 years later, the four Gospels were produced, thus breaking that silence or that divine silence and scripture enter into a new age with the person of Jesus into the New Testament. And a new priesthood was revealed and formed by Jesus. The book of Hebrews would also confirm this new covenant, new priesthood established by Jesus himself. So the silence ended 400 years later with Jesus. The end of Malachi, or the beginning of the silent period as we call it, began at about 400 BC, so 400 years before Christ. And so was the beginning of philosophy, starting with Socrates, also within the same century. Both of these events are within a relatively close era of time, and there is much more to dig up that could relate the two together. My task ahead in this episode is to line up all the pieces together, historically and geographically to paint a coherent picture interpreting the work of God in those times. Now, for what I mean by the dawn of civilization or education, I am referring to the classical Greek period, and I'll point directly to the big three of the philosophers, namely Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I'd hold them primarily responsible for education as we know it today by the PhDs or philosophical doctorates that we grant through universities. This is a very broad stroke of an evaluation. A few more things to note here that will be helpful before we set out to investigate the connections I'm about to propose. Uh, Plato never wrote anything of his own. Everything that he had to say was practically a footnote to Socrates. And out of the knowledge that he inherited from Socrates, Plato developed the academy as a school of thought, like a really elaborate debate club, if you will. That's the academy. 
In a manner of chain reaction, Aristotle later founded the Lyceum, and that was like the first academic science program that studied the natural world. Since Aristotle loved examining the natural world as we experienced it, experienced it scientifically. So, for all the PhDs in the world, or philosophical doctorates and scientific innovation, in my view, they all owe it to the founding institutions of Plato and Aristotle. Science and ideologies advanced through centuries before we today have essayists for subjects of social humanities that shape cultural ideologies, or the most advanced scientific laboratories and medical research. There was at first. Plato and Aristotle, and they in turn really owe it to Socrates. What I want to remark here is that everything started from Socrates. This much is well established and largely unchallenged. The question I'm aiming to answer here is, what motivated Socrates at first? And the answer of which will postulate on a coherence tied to a bigger picture in the ancient religious world, which in turn lent development to world civilizations and Christianity as a religion. So we're backtracking to where Socrates started. That led to Plato and Aristotle,、uh, academy and lyceum, PhDs in sciences, education, civilization, and so on. All within the time frame of the silent years of scripture, those four hundred years. And Socrates, according to his apology, was motivated by a type of divine voice. He calls it, or he called it, or described it as daemon. Or like a sublevel cultural deity, if you will. Okay, are you still with me? <laughs> Good, because now I'm about to、uh, merge these two lines of historical observations to suggest a coherent interpretation. And this is my proposition: the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament coincide with and precipitated the onset of philosophical expressions that were largely responsible for developing Western civilizations in the long term. Due to an influence of the Christian prophetic spirit, whom Socrates had no words for, but to describe as his daemon. Subsequently, the legacy of philosophical traditions became the bedrock on which the Christian Church was cemented by the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament at the much later time, several hundred years later, but in the same region. The philosophers paved the intellectual grounds on which the Apostle Paul would later debate on within a Roman worldview that was primarily, if not completely, shaped by Platonic philosophy. Over time, Christianity was cemented as the worldwide religion from that moment forward, and all that can be connected back to Socrates and his daemon. So now we postulate whether what Socrates called as his daemon could be the prompting from the spirit of God at all during 400 years of divine silence, a silent period observed by the Jews of the East. The spirit of God, about whom Socrates had no hope of knowing at the time, until much later, in the same Roman world, Paul then came onto the scene to preach about. Since, according to Romans 10, after all. How can anyone call on the one they have not believed and have not heard about, unless someone was sent to preach to them about God first? So the apostle Paul was then sent onto the same Roman soil after what we call the silent period, a long, long time after Socrates, having no way whatsoever to call on this God.
In short, according to this proposed historical interpretation for the 400 years of silence, this is to say traces of prophetic inspiration of the Holy Spirit was at work during the classical period of the Roman world. To prepare for an eventual Pauline entrance of the gospel, that's the work of God being highlighted here. This would imply that the Holy Spirit of God did not become silent, but rather began a different work among the Gentiles, for which we have plenty of historical and even some biographical evidence to show thereafter. This would also mean, even throughout the silent period of 400 years, from 400 BC and on, divine silence would be a misnomer. The Spirit of God had been at work all the time, guiding, leading, prompting, for the first philosopher, uh, Socrates, coined by his own wordage here, daemon, which would mean the spirit of the God who was first the God of the Hebrews via Abraham shifted a mission of voice to Grecian philosopher, a thinker, a God of whom he had no knowledge of, received no law or promise, but merely a prompting. So in his own terms, he can only call him daemon. Until hundreds of years later, the gospel was preached among his people, among the Romans of the New Testament, even as the God unknown to them. That uh, sums up my message in a bottle. That God had been at work for the world, both in the East and the West, signify here right at the dividing line between the Eastern Jewish world and the Western Roman world. All that undertaken by a missional God, as in the Spirit of God who has inspired prophets to pen and consolidate the final run of prophetic material up to the end of the Old Testament namely the minor prophets at the turn of the 4th century before Christ, may well have been the same spirit of God who began a missional prompting on the Western Front in a very close proximity of the same century in terms of timing, thereby producing a man, Socrates, whose outcome of life was visibly quite comparable to Jesus, though meant that they were in many ways very different. Which ultimately would mean what we generally call the silent period of Scripture. There was really no silence at all. Only the mission of God or the voice of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit shifted from the Jewish world into the Greco-Roman pagan Gentile world. In his own defense, it was only the this unnamed deity that he called Damon that prompted Socrates to seek virtue and wisdom without answers. To describe this plainly, a spirit led Socrates to ask questions about wisdom and virtue, and he found no answers to the point at which he died like Jesus. And then Paul came to preach. And then, and then, and then, 400 years later, after the silent period and the classical period, Jesus and subsequently his apostle Paul continued to work to firmly, by the Holy Spirit, to fully catalyze the message of the gospel, engaging both the culture and the inquiring minds of the Roman masses like an act of service, thereby began evangelizing the Western world. This is like saying the Holy Spirit put questions into the classical minds, starting with Socrates and his pupils, Plato and Aristotle, and out came the human intellectual endeavor known as philosophy and science, which goes on to cement Western civilization. A humanly endeavor at best. But the answers for said questions is only the gospel, which Jesus embodied, and Paul went on, or rather went in, into the Greco-Roman world to proclaim. All of this is to explain or propose to explain that 400 years of silence in scripture was really no silence at all, only that we couldn't hear it from the same place in the Jewish world alone. If indeed there was a missional shift in the voice of God, 
which later came to a fuller and more visible fruition by the Pauline missional expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world. As in the Holy Spirit already prepared that world with those questions via Socrates for Apostle Paul to preach on. The question the Spirit of God had put into the philosophers, the same Spirit of God gave the gospel as the ultimate answer and response. For the moment, consider this a thesis or a proposition of a historical interpretation. For every thesis, there is never certainty, only the process and pathway of arriving there. The pieces which I'm about to line up for you is, in my view, very much worth our rumination. I will outline the supporting points and defend the weaknesses in this claim, and then I'll outline the implications and benefits of the interpretation as well. The primary support for this claim comes from the coinciding uh, historical timing, namely the silent period of Scripture and the life of Socrates. Secondly, uh, the comparable outcome of the life of Jesus, who unapologetically was completely led by the Holy Spirit of God, comparable here by Socrates in the way they died. And finally, the subsequent interaction of philosophy and Christianity found in the expansion of the church under Pauline missionary effort and made possible by Socrates' motivation brought on by his said daemon, meaning this is how Jesus died when he had the Holy Spirit. Now see how Socrates died. And listen to how Paul responded with the gospel to what Socrates asked about, about wisdom and virtue as a tradition due to his said daemon. Secondary support will come from scriptural validation, both from New Testament and the Old Testament, not necessarily to justify these claims, but at the very least to make room for such an interpretation. Had it been the prompting of the Spirit of God at that time in the pagan world, then surely it will be in full agreement with the truth of Scripture as well. And this interpretation will have implications for apologetics, the mission of God, and the philosophical debate between duality of reason and faith. Most importantly, the glory of God for raising an education for mankind even. And i also talk about how I came to this thesis. All that at the very end. Now, there's a lot of pieces required to make this argument hold. So I'm going to outline them one by one. It's like I have shown you what's on the menu. Now I have to prepare for the ingredients before cooking it for you. In my view, the pillar of this claim has many supporting columns under it, and it is possible to make this argument stand. They are chronological, biographical, and motivational. Now, in terms of chronology, the timing is already spoken for, and probably the easiest point to consolidate. The end of Malachi is generally dated within the same century as the beginning of Socrates' life at his, in his intellectual conquest. Uh, The significance of timing is to convey the Holy Spirit of God had been at work continuously at one time in different places, as opposed to a notion strictly confined within the realm of Jewish prophecy, hence conveying said perceived periodic silence. Uh, There is plenty of scholarship devoted to the dating of the book of Malachi as the last of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, And the general consensus on the subject is very agreeable. The prophecy of Malachi would be produced after Nehemiah's rededication of the temple and its practices, which puts Malachi's authorship at around 450 BC or at least 510. The life of Socrates, during which he was prompted by his agent, the so-called daemon, is even easier to narrow down. He lived between 470 and 399 or 400 BC. 
He died just after the age of 71. The dating of both the book of Malachi and the life of Socrates is the easiest to verify. And they coincide close enough within the realm of prophetic continuation. So I'm going to move on ahead from discussing it further. Now for Socrates' claims of his daemon. Socrates, his life had had a mission. One day he got up and started going around every town to debate every person he could find on the matters of virtue and vice and wisdom. The result of which was the Socratic dialogue and the beginning of philosophy as an academic essay standard. He goes around town asking people what is good, what is virtuous. Hence the term is born philosophia or for the love of wisdom. This word will be important later on. On that note, a Christian may say Socrates had asked the right questions for wisdom at which only the gospel could provide the answer at a much later time. All the more to open a connection between Socrates, Daemon, and the gospel, or at least a dialogue that way. It is not entirely impossible that Socrates had to invent or borrow a new word, Daemon, to describe a deity that he did not know about, whom no one had yet to preach about in his land until the Apostle Paul arrived some 500 years later. In fact, one may argue, to invent an ill-suited wordage, daemon, would be the only possible solution. Had the Spirit of God entered our lives, how is anyone to describe him at all without proper knowledge of him? That, in my view, was Socrates, at loss with words to describe an unknown God to his accuser, himself under an undeniable influence which brought him to an unprecedented death and legacy. However, a life truly inspired by the Holy Spirit must be comparable at least and even recognizable in some ways with Scripture. And who else to compare with other than Jesus? And that leads us into the next supporting segment. This is where we can begin a comparison between Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, who came from the Jews, and Socrates, the first philosopher par excellence, who went around town asking questions that no one can answer about wisdom and truth. This comparison should not be difficult to come by, I don't think. No doubt there's already been uh, academic undertakings to compare the biographical study of the two men, Jesus and Socrates. Here I'll only highlight some noteworthy uh, similarities between them. Both Jesus and Socrates, both of them, had a very specific mission and objective. Both of them claimed to be sent by a great supernatural power, greater than themselves. Both of them were accused of something completely different from their own goals. Rather, they were accused for causing some type of disturbance in their existing social system. As a result, both of them, Jesus and Socrates, were sentenced to death. Both of them had the opportunity to escape their death sentence. Both of them had disciples who urged them to run away. And both of them insisted on their respective innocence and voluntarily faced death by judicial sentence. Which, by the way, is the most remarkable and comparable expression. There are differences between Jesus and Socrates, of course. Uh, Socrates had a relatively unremarkable ancestry. And Jesus, on the other hand, is crowned king of the Jews, named son of God by his disciples, and came from quite a lineage of kings and forefathers of the Jews. Socrates was raised in an unapologetically pantheistic world, whereas Jesus rised up in a strictly monotheist culture. 
More could be said, but the main draw to be sustained here could be a very substantial and comparable pattern in a life that was imbued by the Holy Spirit of God. The Jesus who lived and died the way he did was a Jesus that was completely full of the Holy Spirit, and he died resolutely. Jesus is, of course, the primary precedent here, or the control case here in the scientific terms. And Socrates here would be the experimental propositional interpretation under the Spirit of God, under discussion here. As in, the Spirit of God who led the life of Jesus in such a way had once made the death of Socrates recognizable or comparable in some similar fashion that ultimately, in the end, laid the gospel to be received in that region. And at this, you may venture to say these are the markings or the signs of someone who lived and died by the Holy Spirit. Or you could also say the mission and life and death of Socrates can be viewed comparably as a type of what Jesus later firmly defined as what a man led by the Spirit of God is supposed to live and die like. Meaning Jesus defined by the Spirit what is it like to be led by the Spirit of God to live and die like? And then there was Socrates who was a type of that, if he was indeed led by the Holy Spirit. But for the reasons and comparisons already listed above, Socrates is hopelessly disadvantaged for any knowledge of the Hebrew God who was embarking on a mission for the Gentiles. Nobody knew that yet. Based on his immediate cultural upbringing and educational resources, not to mention the lineage of his own ancestry, Socrates had no hope of knowing any of that about a Hebrew God embarking on a mission for Gentiles. Jesus, on the other hand, had much more. Jesus was sent by the Father, and Jesus himself was to send the Holy Spirit. He was born of Virgin Mary as the Son of God. He is the Ancient of Days, Eternal Word of God made flesh. Socrates simply could not have known about who God is or how the Spirit of God operates. In those ways, he was not like Jesus at all. And he would have no word for it but his own, quote-unquote, daemon, to describe the prophetic spirit or the mission of God. All of that during the silent period of Scripture. And after all, it was only during his apology or his defense on trial that Socrates gave credit to his daemon before he died, after he was sentenced to death. Socrates claimed to be directed by this or a daemon recorded in Plato's Apology, the reference for which can be found at 31d, 37e, 40a to 40c of Apology, and also in Phaedrus 242b to c. That's the bulk of the rationale behind the thesis and some of the sources for fact-checking. 